You are recurring 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 26, Delectable Sauerkraut. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is Ruhr Valley, a, an HB upgrade. Uh, we'll get to the details of it later, but the flavor text on it says, known for luxury hoppers and a delectable sauerkraut. Well, sure, I could have put, picked Eli 1.0. That would have been the obvious choice. In fact, a little too obvious. So I went with something else for my title card. Although Eli does factor, for sure, into this week's episode as we look at the future-proof data pack, the sixth data pack in the Genesis cycle, focused on the corpse side. We'll see the changes that Reboot brought, and then we'll take a look at a lengthier article and a couple of deck lists that focus on the meta as it existed at the end of the Genesis cycle originally. Uh, Reboot has changed it a bit, but I think there's a lot of good information there. And if nothing else, it's a nice blast from the past. Satellite Uplink. Future Proof from the Corp side. Of the 11 Corp cards in Future Proof, eight of them have received adjustments in Reboot, and one of those is a nerf. Let's take a look at it. It's an NBN card, Mid-Season Replacements, a five-cost operation which you can play only if the runner stole an agenda on their last turn. The change, instead of a Trace 6, is now a Trace 3. If successful, give tags equal to the difference between the Trace and the Link. Talk about the logic behind that in a little bit. First, let's take a look at all of the buffs in this set. Uh, the first one is Roar Valley, a region upgrade for HB. Its res cost has been reduced from 6 to 3. The trash cost is 4. As an additional cost to make a run on this server, the runner must spend click. The Jinteki upgrade, Sysop upgrade, Midori, a res cost of zero, the trash cost has increased from three to five. Once per run, when the runner approaches a piece of ice protecting this server, you may swap that ice with a piece of ice from HQ, which is installed unresed. So more Jinteki ice shenanigans. Two other cards from NBN, The World is Yours, the 4012 identity, the maximum hand size is increased by, instead of one, three. Flare, a sentry with a res cost of nine previously, now seven, and a strength of six. Its one subroutine is a hefty trace six that trashes a piece of hardware does two unpreventable meat damage, and ends the run. 
if successful. Both of Wayland's cards are buffed, dedicated response team, an asset with a res cost of 2. Its trash cost increased slightly from 3 to 4. If the runner is tagged, it gains the ability, whenever a successful run ends, do 2 meat damage. And Burke Bugs, a sentry with a res cost of 0 and a strength of 0. The subroutine originally was a trace 0, but now is a trace 4. If successful, the runner trashes one program. And the one neutral card is also buffed Corporate War, a 4-2 agenda. If you have at least, used to be 7 credits when you score, 5 credits now. You gain 7 credits. If you have less than 5 credits, you lose all your credits. The three unchanged cards are from HB Eli 1.0. You've heard about it. Here it is. A Bioroid Barrier with a res cost of 3, a strength of 4, and two subroutines, both of them end the run. The artist is Sandara Tang, a previous subject of the Maker's Eye. As is true for the next one, a Genteki card, Ronin. It is an advanceable asset, a res cost of 0, a trash cost of 2, it's also 4 influence. If it has at least four advancement counters on it, tokens. It gains the ability, click, trash this card, do three net damage. The artist is Adam S. Doyle. And the other NBN card, Project Beal, a three for two over-advanceable agenda. It gains a counter for every two extra advancements. Each counter is worth one additional point. So that means not only is it a 3-2, it is also a 5-3, and a 7-4, a 9-5, an 11-6, and a 13-7, if you can manage it. The artwork here from Matt Zeilinger. Matrix Analyzer. Let's take a look at some of the reasoning and some of the effects of the reboot uh, changes. First, the big boys' comments on mid-season replacements. At Trace 6, it was far too easy to land a huge mid-seasons on the runner very early in the game. Landing multiple tags with a single card should require a large credit lead, not just a fleeting lead of a few credits. And yes, I uh, can testify that at Trace 3, it is definitely not as strong as it was as a trace six. And as far as some of the buffs, let me talk first about the NBN identity. The world is yours. There is a pre-constructed deck for the world is yours. Uh, so that is one of 13 pre-constructed decks for corpse, and three of them are NBN decks. And it appears, I haven't played it, to, appears to be a combo-driven deck using Breaking News or C-Source, S-E-A Source, to land a tag, Big Brother to multiply tags, then Psychographics and an upcoming agenda that isn't available yet in our pool to score out. So that's, let's see, Breaking News, 
or SEA source, that's one. Big Brother is two. Psychographics is three. And Agenda is four. That's quite a lot of cards to hold on to all at once. So presumably when your hand size is now eight, instead of only six, that will help out quite a bit. The corporate war agenda, the benefit is simplified a bit. It's a little easier to get, although it's nice the synergy they had with sevens before. It's greater than seven credits, you get seven credits. Less than seven credits, you lose all your credits. But it's far more common to have the threshold of having only five credits in your pool uh, because you want to play hedge fund. So that seems make, makes it more useful, particularly early in the game. The fact that it's already a 4-2 that you have to score, it's not as easy as a 3-2. Reducing the requirement for how many credits you still need to have seems reasonable. But let me talk about Ruhr Valley a little bit, our title card for this episode. It has received an enormous improvement, the cost to res it being slashed from 6 to 3, so that makes it a lot easier to slot into Glacier decks with upgrades as a scoring condition, a la something like the Waldemar deck that I talked about several episodes back. I want to share some comments about the card from NetrunnerDB. This is the well, original FFG version of the card pool. But we'll see why this buff to the card, reducing its cost in half, is so powerful. First comment is from Link Fox in June of 2015, and he says this, The popularity of Enhanced Login Protocol, which is an operation from the third cycle that has this same spend-click retirement requirement, shows just how powerful the requirement of an additional click to make a run can be. And I would say, see also Jinteki's replicating perfection ID. Ruhr Valley does the same thing, but as a region only on the server it is in, which can be difficult to deal with. Add to that, it is expensive to res, and it must be resed before the runner begins a run, potentially leaving the corp with too little to res ice on that server. That is what gives Ruhr Valley a severe drawback, one that may not be countered by the drawbacks currents like ELP have. It has some interesting possibilities, but the six res cost is so hard to get going with still enough, with still floating enough credits to make ice possible to be resed. And so, Imagine that comment in a world where it only costs three to res. Ah, it's a different story then, isn't it? The other comment, also from NetrunnerDB, is from user Rafi Nuclei from January of 2016, who said this, used it, liked it. Here's why. First of all, let's give the elephant some space. You do have to res this before the runner declares a run if you want it to have any effect. That being said, is six credits a good price? I'd say it all depends on how you use it. On a fort with one piece of ice, bioroid or not, six credits is steep. But if you're playing HB, your ice is probably stacked thick. Maybe you have two pieces of ice. A third would cost two to install, a fourth, three. 
Subtract that from Ruhr's res cost of 6, and now we're looking at a more reasonable price, paid for at the timing of your discretion, instead of another piece of ice with an install cost up front and the res cost later. The best Genesis cycle combo I've found effective, this is the comment continuing, is to stick this behind Heimdall 1.0 on a central server, ensuring the runner can't simply click past. Later, it strengthens 2.0 Bioroid Ice as well, I reckon. As a late-game card, if you are Haas Bioroid engineering the future, and you see it too early, you might consider playing this for the credit on a slow turn, resing it when it becomes relevant. Lastly, it's worth noting that it can help to mitigate the use of E3 feedback implants. So when would I actually play this card? Let's imagine a 9-agenda HB deck with 2 San San City Grid and 3 Biotic Labor. I'm Haas Bioroid, Engineering the Future, and I have 3 accelerated beta tests I want to use, so the deck is roughly 50% ice, with the remainder filled with economy. That's when I would play this card. So he's referring to a Haas Bioroid Fast Advance deck there. And I haven't talked about Fast Advance in great detail yet. I intend to soon. It'll come up a little later. But that is one of the stronger decks uh, as of the Genesis cycle. Data Sucker. Let's take a look at these new options for ICE in Future Proof and sort them. Are they binary? Are they analog? Are they in the run? Are they taxing? One of these three ICE is great. One of them is good. And one of them is bad. That one is Burke Bugs, the lowest of the low-end binary taxing ICE. But it's better now that there's a 4 trace instead of a 0 trace, which means as an early game ice, it can actually do something, even though the runner gets to choose the program which is trashed. But once a killer is down, almost everything breaks it for one credit, even Ninja, even Crypsis, but not Creeper. But even then it only costs 2. So definitely binary taxing. The white runner wants to pay four, assuming you don't boost the trace, pay four to get through without losing a program. But there's no use for this ice late in the game, I'd say. The good ice is flare. Flare is a tough thing to face check. And now it only costs the corp seven instead of nine. So there's a good chance you're not seeing it early game. But if you do, and you don't have your killer out as the runner, it'll cost six just to pay through the trace, assuming the corp doesn't boost it, to avoid the otherwise unpreventable meat damage, the end the run, and that very rare hardware destruction. So that's tough. But once you do have a killer out, at best, it's still going to cost you five. That's for Garot and Ninja to break. So that's a pretty healthy tax for something that the runner almost certainly wants to break. Now, because it's so expensive, 
now it becomes a good target for the criminal killers like Femme Fatale and Ferry. And so, of course, Ferry gets through it for, what, three? And Femme, once it's installed, clicks through it for just one, since it's only one subroutine. But for our sorting purposes, this is definitely an analog taxing ice. And then the great ice, Eli 1.0. Now, it's not an end-the-run ice, because it, even though it has end-the-run subroutines, because it's a bioroid, so you can always click through it. That makes it a taxing ice. It's an analog taxing ice. And because I can't begin to put it as well as this next comment, I'll hold on to it for just a moment. Mandatory Upgrades, Eli 1.0. Here's this comment is from Simon Moon in January of 2018, after Eli had been rotated out of the card pool. It's from an article called, Allow Me to Break the Ice, A Guide to Analyzing Ice in Netrunner. And I'm just going to pluck the part of the article that talked specifically about Eli. When it was released... Eli was immediately the best ice in the game, and for a large period of time was far and away the best ice, up until at least Lady, that's the third cycle, the fifth pack, and probably Knifed, that's the third deluxe expansion, came out. Notably, like all Bioroid ice, it actually gives the runner more options to deal with it by clicking through. So why was it so good? Well. Eli 1.0 had a low res cost, 3, which meant it was hard to abuse the tempo loss associated with resing it by running somewhere else. On top of that, at the beginning of Netrunner, Corroder was the main barrier breaker and cost 4 credits to break it. Even just breaking Eli twice was a tax of 8 credits, which is a great trade for only 3 credits to res. The additional option, paying two clicks, is typically considered about as expensive as four credits. Even some of the other options, such as Atman at four strength, a seven-credit install, that's coming in the next box, only allowed you to break it for two credits. Parasite took four turns to kill it or cost data suckers, as well as the cost of a card and two-credit trade, now three in Reboot, for a card and three credits. Fundamentally, Eli 1.0 was very good because none of the options for dealing with it were good options. There was no way to efficiently break it either once or repeatedly, and it was cheap enough that there was little downside of resing it. Eli 1.0 is a strong lesson for the evaluation of ice by thinking about all the ways to deal with it. And when you come up with no good ways, you end up with a very strong piece of ice. And so, that's why it's right here in the mandatory upgrades section. Because just about everybody is going to want Eli in their deck. Archived Memories The bulk of the rest of this episode is going to be an article by Alex Rockwell, user Alex Frog, posted on Stimhack, very early days of Stimhack, called Two 
future-proof deck lists, but he also includes a meta-analysis at the end. And so I'm going to just go ahead and read the article, read the deck lists, read all of the ex- explanations, and I'll drop in comments uh, where necessary. With the current cycle complete, I'd like to take some time to look at two deck lists, specifically an NBN deck list, since NBN just got an amazing card in Project Beal, and a criminal list, because criminal is the strongest runner right now, in my opinion. They might have been tied with Noise Workshop in the middle of the release of this data pack cycle, but the last two expansions have given them the solid HQ and R&D interfaces without really giving Noise Workshop any cards that improve that deck much, except maybe Cotty Jones, which increases tag vulnerability. Finally, I'll rank each faction's strength relative to the others based on my current thoughts. Of course, I haven't played every archetype of every faction with the new card, so I could be wrong. Onward to the deck lists. First of all, let's think about whether or not we should use the new NBN identity, the world is yours. Or should I call it, the world is not enough because it doesn't have enough influence. I share the opinion of many that the new identity is pretty terrible. If it had been a straight 4015, it would have a definite place. Cutting the worst agenda and the worst four other cards from your deck without losing any influence makes you a bit more consistent and able to get off those Beals and Astro scripts a bit more often. However, the difference between a 40 and 45 card deck is often overrated. It matters, but not hugely. It still might not even be enough to be playable. However, the identity also has only 12 influence, which hurts, and simply has a much weaker power than the original NBN. Plus one hand size for corpse is a really minor power. As a runner power, it would be okay. It would help prevent flatlining, which is quite useful, but it barely helps a corp. Basically, it says, if you are playing no trace cards in NBN, you can pay three influence to cut five cards from your deck. But the thing is, there are some trace cards in the game that become fantastic when you add plus two to their trace, and missing out on those really hurts. Plus two tracing power helps turn certain good cards into great cards, and certain okay cards into good cards. It has a significant impact on the game, and can help to prevent Link from completely neutering many of your cards. In addition to Ice, there is Bernice Mai, Mid-Season Replacements, etc. As a result, I will use the original NBN identity. NBN Flytrap my future-proof version. The basic premise of Flytrap, as originated by DB0, is to lure the opponent into a run, which even if it awards them an agenda, causes them to fall into tagging hell. In the original version, Data Ravens protected Snares and were followed up by Big Brothers, or the combo began with a breaking news Big Brother. Caduceus is a key economy engine of the deck, providing money while the runner hits your centrals. 
FutureProof gave us a new card for this archetype in mid-season replacements. Rather than needing to big brother the runner to get a couple more tags, if we can trick the runner into scoring an agenda while broke, we can now mid-season them for infinite tags. We can then complete the win with the psychographics on Project Beal. So, our goals in this deck are try to win the economy war and be richer than the runner. Try to build defenses that allow the runner through, but drain them economically, and or give us money when they do it. We want the runner to score an agenda at the right time, but we also want them to become poor when they do it. Have two win conditions. One is tag storm combo, but also we want to legitimately be able to win by pushing agendas through. Alternate win conditions are not reliable, they're a bonus. Also, the threat of us winning will force the runner to have to run everything we play because it could be an agenda, or else risk losing. What are the key cards to this archetype? Caduceus is an ice that is great at helping us win economically over the runner while not necessarily stopping them. We can use our NBN ability to pump the economy trace and guarantee getting $3 or draining the runner a lot. Alternately, if we need to stop them or drain their money, we can pump the second trace. Shadow similarly drains the runner. Data Raven is great at draining a runner who feels that he has to get in. It will help us in our goal of presenting two bad options to the runner. Either let us score this agenda, or suffer economically, but get in. Ichi is another ice that doesn't stop the runner, but is strong at draining them. Since NBN makes the trace actually threatening, it generally costs three clicks or a ton of money to get through Ichi. Eli is an efficient ice that drains two clicks or a lot of money to get through. As it never requires an icebreaker, it's great for draining the runner at any point where we have tricked him into running when it's not actually a good idea to do so. It's also great at slowing down central server assaults. Chum is a strong card to add in front of things like Caduceus and Data Raven, and provides insurance against Link. If the runner gets Link to nullify our trace cards, we can make them live again by putting Chum in front. Mid-season replacements and psychographics allow us to tag the runner and convert it into a win, if we have achieved our goal of getting him poor on an agenda run. Also, psychographics forces a runner to care about our tags from ravens and other sources, even if they have plascrete. Basically, the theme is, yes, dear runner, you may always come in, but there is a cost. Previously, you might have played snares and scorched earths in this kind of deck. However, those cost a lot of influence, and there are tons of out-of-faction ice that are very strong in this archetype. Now, with the in-faction combo of psychographics and mid-season, which is also not nullified by plascrete, I think that's the way to go. Also, even without mid-season, psychographics can punish a couple tags very well by being an incredibly cheap, fast advance card. Additionally, 
we want to play cards that the runner really needs to run to lure them into our economy-draining trap as often as possible. Melange and Sansan seem perfect for this, as both have a strong ability if unkilled. If anyone thinks Melange is bad in a deck that can only weakly protect it, they are wrong. Unless you literally never put ice on a remote server, Melange will serve to drain money and time from the runner for essentially no effort. And if it's not run immediately, you gain an economic benefit as well. The runners thought that they need to run items we put face down behind ice right away because they could be agendas or melange will help us to lure them into Bernice Mize and cause them to lose lots of credits breaking in to look at our unresed Sansan, which then either costs them five more, I think it's four now in reboot, or stays in play. Bernice Mai also works well as a trap that contributes to our tag and economy drain plan. And if the runner ignores it, we can add on another card in the server and still keep Bernice around. Here is the list. 3. Astroscript Pilot Program 3. Project Beale 3. Breaking News 1. False Lead 2. Private Security Force He says alternately you may swap a breaking and false lead for one PSF if desired, but breaking news is very strong and is easy points. For assets, three Melange Mining Corp, three Marked Accounts, three San San City Grid, two Bernice Mai. For operations, two Psychographics, two Mid-Season Replacements, three Hedge Fund. And for ICE, a total of 12, 14, 16, 19. So I guess that's right. Three pop up window, three data raven, two neutral wall of static, two caduceus from Wayland, three chum from Jinteki, one shadow from Wayland, two Ichi from HB, and three Eli from HB. Our ice is all about allowing the runner through at a cost generally equal to equal or higher than our ice cost. This deck is about winning the economy war then crushing them with the mid-season replacements. What about other NBN archetypes? I think they are all strong, and they all improved with Beale. Whether it's a trick-of-light, fast-advance build, a never-advance build, where you always are installing a card behind ice, and it can either be a trap slash waste of time, or an agenda that you then score, or whatever, NBN is good now. Also, all of these decks could play the Psychographics mid-season combo, but they don't have to. They could focus on other things if they want. On to a runner deck. Here is an Andromeda deck. Initially, when Andromeda came out, Everyone I know tried to build an Underworld Contact deck with her, thinking that she will have a good chance of getting it going turn one. But Underworld Contact has several problems. First, it's slow. Criminals are good at attacking right away, and then applying immense pressure and denying the corp resources. Underworld doesn't combo very well with that plan, as it just slows you down at first, only giving money later. Second, it's a resource. 
This means that as soon as you play a count siphon, the best criminal card, you have to then spend time and money removing tags, greatly weakening your siphon. It would be a lot nicer if a criminal could just ignore those tags. Ignore tagging ice as well and be safe with plascrete. If you just laugh at tags, suddenly a server guarded by a data raven is not guarded by anything at all, and your attack continues. And, of course, in Reboot, Andromeda doesn't come with a link, so that makes Underworld Contact worse there as well. My initial impressions of Andromeda were poorer than they should have been, because this deck simply didn't work well enough. It didn't attack hard enough early on to utilize the criminal's strength, and getting one or two credits a turn later on just isn't good enough to make up for that weakness. Magnum Opus can give you money very efficiently as well, without forcing you to care about tags. Switching away from that deck to a deck focusing more on early pressure, more like Gabe, helped me to achieve stronger results. The theme of this deck list is that it will hit you twice as hard on turn two as Gabe hits you on turn one, because when it hits you turn two, it has an interface to back up the attack and look at two cards. The Andromeda nine-card star usually provides you with some burst economy cards, like Sure Gamble, and helps you begin turn two with strong cards in hand like Account Siphon and Emergency Shutdown, enough money to pay for things, and a greater chance of attack-supporting cards like Desperado, Sneak Door, and Interfaces. While its pressure might be a little lighter than Gabe's, it will sustain that pressure better all game, through a stronger economy and the use of HQ and R&D interface for multi-card accesses. R&D interface also provides the potential for late-game R&D locking, which is basically the best late-game runner plan. Given that corps often have a strong late-game plan of fast advancing straight from hand, a good runner needs to use the counter-strategy prevent them from drawing any agendas at all by looking at all cards in R&D before you do. Here's the deck, Andromeda's Interfaces. The Breaker Suite, three Crypsis, one Corroder from Anarch, one Yog.0 from Anarch, two Femme Fatale, two Special Order. Other programs, two Sneak Door Beta, Two Magnum Opus from Shaper. For hardware, three Desperado. Alex Frog says, zero stupid doppelgangers. Three R&D interface from Shaper. Three HQ interface. Three Plascrete Carapace. The key to giving no cares about tags. And two Dyson Memchip. Memory and helps weaken annoying ice like Caduceus and Viper that are otherwise big problems for you. Events. Two quality time from Shaper. He says this card is great in an Opus deck. Three account siphon. Three emergency shutdown. Three inside job. Three sure gamble. Two easy mark. Two infiltration. Resources. Screw those things. They die if you ever get tagged. Never waste a credit removing a tag. Ever. Okay, almost never. Why is this deck good? 
It maintains the criminal aggression of Gabe, possibly with a one-turn delay, but often beginning with a turn-one run of an undefended server. Alternately, it executes the Gabe aggression on turn two, but with an interface thrown in, doubling its effectiveness. I find that often people don't ice everything on turn one against Andromeda. Not icing R&D is most common. If you go sure gamble, easy mark, R&D interface, run R&D for two cards, then discard one duplicate card in your hand like an extra copy of Crypsis or Plascrete, that's nice. What are some ways you could modify this deck? Well, people don't play many enigmas or victors against you, and then you could cut the yog for a quality time or something. You could add in, of course, I'll, I'll mention again, victor, not, yog not useful against Victor. So maybe just straight up cut the yog for a quality time in reboot. You could add in data leak reversal and play turns like account siphon, data leak reversal, mill you twice. Then the corp is basically forced to spend two credits and a click, killing the data leak reversal. This contributes to the plan of keeping the corp poor while also giving you more ways to access cards. You could cut Magnum Opus for modded, freeing up memory, and then cut Dyson Memchips for other cards. This would provide a stronger start, but lose a lot of sustained economy that helps you R&D lock the corp later. This would make it more likely that you can hold on to a sneak door all game, rather than trashing it once you get the corp to res a couple eyes on archives to free up memory. However, late game, you want to transition to an R&D-focused attack anyway and so you don't really need Sneak Door much anymore at that point. You could add E3 implants for an HB-heavy meta. If for some reason lots of people played Jinteki, you could add Public Sympathy, helping your turn one and giving you seven cards to make avoiding a flatline simple. Finally, some thoughts on the relative strengths of the different factions. Runners. Number one, aggressive Andromeda or Gabe. Both criminal identities are about equal, both super strong. Gabe's economy is strong if you can hit HQ. Andromeda's economy isn't as strong while she is pressuring, but is better long-term. She recovers better if the corp actually manages to stop your early pressure and starts to get safe. Number two, Noise Workshop. The best inevitability and strongest late game of any runner, but only a moderate early game and has tag vulnerability. If you play it like a shaper who makes no runs for a long time, then it's worse. If you play it like a Gabe who goes all in on running without developing economically at all, it's worse. You need to identify the weakest corpse server while building up moderately and then blow a hole in it and hammer it unbelievably hard. Your pressure will be sustained from then on since you built up some first. Number three, well-made shaper decks, probably Kate, with R&D interface, magnum opus, good card draw, both three quality time and three diesel, infiltration, femme fatale, and zero copies of Underworld Contact or Cotty Jones. They need to set up fast, focus on upfront economy, 
because Opus takes care of long-term, and have early game play like Cripsis and Stimhack, Inside Job, etc. Opus provides 100% of your needed long-term economy. Workshop and Pawn Shop provide even more and have good utility. All the rest of your economy cards need to be highly focused on getting you set up absolutely as fast as possible. They should not be more slow, long-term money sources like Kati or Underworld Contact. Ranked in order of strength, that means Account Siphon, if you can ignore tags, Stim Hack with Workshop, Account Siphon with Tag Removal, Modded, Sure Gamble, and then things you shouldn't play because they aren't good enough. Number four, Resource Denial Combo Anarch Decks, Account Siphon Vamp Builds, Maybe Joshua B. Data Loop, Data Loop Feedback, Data Link Reversal, etc. They revolve around some powerful combo that, if pulled off, crushes the corp very hard, generally involving making the corp have zero credits and then hitting R&D a lot with medium. This archetype would be stronger if pop-up window was not a card. Number five bad Andromeda decks that provide no pressure at all early on and have forgotten the goal of being criminal. But at least they have underworld contact in play and a million credits, right? Too bad that it now costs you 10 credits to access a card when you could have been doing it for free early on after making them broke. Number six, bad Anarch decks. Two versions. First, the ones that try to get out a full Anarch Breaker suite and probably some viruses and don't run at all for a very long time. Second, the ones that just put out a couple things early on and start attacking, but never have any economy or do anything broken. Number seven, bad Shaper decks that dirtle around way too long trying to build a super rig without interacting with the corp ever and lose the game to fast corp decks before they ever make a run. Now, before I get into his comments on the corp decks, let me just talk for a second, because I think this plays into a lot of his analysis, about the tournament structure that was going on at this point in the history of the game. So here, the idea was that you would play two games, runner and corp, uh, you'd each play both of your decks, but then you also kept score. So if you lost a game 7-6 and then won the next game 7-5, you won the match. You got extra points for scoring on the, in that match. I think they gave you, did they give you 10 points? I'm not sure on that. Maybe 10 points for a, for a flat line, a kill. But what basically that means is if your deck has a tendency to get wiped out, losing 7 nothing, well, that's less good in a tournament because scoring any points, even if you lose, can win you the match and progress you along in the tournament. With that in mind, here are his comments on the corpse. Number one, HB fast advance or variations. There are multiple variations running around. As a general rule, they are all very strong. 
whether they have sansan, trick of light, or both. They also score well during losses, usually at least pushing out two or three agendas before losing, because they score easily. Scoring well during losses is a big deal in the current tournament format. A corp deck that can win a lot, but also scores decently during its losses, is strong right now. Number two, NBN Fast Advance, Never Advance, Flytrap, or Variations. Fast Advance as a strategy archetype is just really strong. It's like an ace in the hole against runners without a strong central server attack. Whether it's Fast Advance, Never Advance, Mid-Season Psycho, the new Flytrap, or whatever else, NBN is simply good now. When your agenda mix contains three Astroscript, three Project Beal, and two or three breaking news, it's hard to make a bad deck, and easy to always at least score many points, even if you lose. Number three, Wayland. Does well if it pushes through a five-difficulty agenda early, priority, government, or plus-two atlas, or kills you. Tends to lose if it can't do one of these. Skilled runners are more likely to not die, and more likely to do things like Crypsis Stimhack, or inside job you and steal their way into your big server after you went install double advance. So unfortunately your game suffers against the top players. It's pretty strong at beating average players though. I'm not sure if mid-season replacements will be good in it or not, but it might. Number four, HB Big Fort. Does well against non-criminals, but weak to criminal. However, this suddenly becomes the greatest deck ever when your turn two beta test flips up Heimdall and Janus. So maybe if you know you're just an average player, you could play this and pray to the variance gods for a lucky regionals day. The main problem is that this deck is at a significant risk of being 7-0'd by a criminal. That's a full match loss. Number five, Jinteki. Yes, strong players with Jinteki still beat average players frequently. However, strong players with other corps also beat average players frequently as well, usually with less effort required. Also, they aren't put at a huge disadvantage when going up against a strong runner who is skilled at avoiding getting flatlined. In addition, decks that focus heavily on trying to kill you can be disadvantaged in tournament scoring. If when your plan fails, you only get a couple points, that's bad. If your HB or NBN deck gets to four to six points but falls short, that's much less bad. I feel that what Jinteki really needs is not to get better at killing people, but to get better at scoring points and having an economy. This would supplement the flatline wins with more agenda wins, provide more average points during losses, and help provide more game against a skilled player who is hard to flatline. Number six, any poorly optimized corp deck with insufficient economy, or the ones that don't play the good agendas available to their faction. Hint, in general, the strength of an agenda is inversely proportional to its difficulty. All two-for-one and three-for-two agendas are extremely strong. You can pretty much rank the corpse strength by the strength of their agendas.
Well, that again is the very lengthy article, Two Future-Proof Deck Lists, from Stimhack. I will link to it in the show notes, as well as to reboot project versions of both of those deck lists. And that pretty much wraps up the episode. Many of the cards discussed this week are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action. The website for the show is netrunner2.1.com. Reteki.fun is where you can play games virtually of the Reboot Project. And you can find games on the Discord server. You can also contact me. All of this stuff is in the show notes. This time around, for the AstroScript pilot program, we're going back to the Worlds of Android book and beginning the section in the Jinteki portion of the book about clones. Just like in the HB section, there was this huge portion that was talking, was that that newspaper-like thing? Well, here is a whole huge portion just about clones. I'm not going to read it all in one go because it breaks up more nicely. This one's about AIVM, whatever that is, and neural conditioning. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Accelerated in vitro maturation. While Haas Bioroid was debuting the Mark II, Genteki was still searching for a stable means to grow clones in vats. Growing a clone to adulthood by traditional means is time-consuming and expensive. Genteki understood that few could afford to pay for the decades of growth and training required. At last, researcher Satoshi Hiro unlocked the revolutionary vat-growing technique to mass-produce clones on an unprecedented scale, thereby minimizing time, materials, and the amount of skilled labor required. The stable vat-growing process, known as accelerated in vitro maturation, AIVM, prepares clones for consumers in a matter of weeks by leveraging growth factors adapted from other organisms. The process begins with eggs obtained from existing cloned tissue that are first cleansed of DNA and are later artificially fertilized using a carefully prepared complex of DNA and proteins according to their clonal template. Each zygote is then isolated into a test-tube-sized container. As it continues its cell division, usually at a normal biological rate, a single cell is isolated from each blastocyst and subjected to a rapid genetic analysis to confirm that there are no anomalies present in the specimen. Any blastocysts that have anomalies are recycled, while those that match expectations are transferred to an artificial womb. Artificial wombs are hybrid devices composed of synthetic and living tissues. Shortly after the blastocyst is inserted into the machine, it implants upon the living protein cellular matrix that makes up a portion of the artificial womb. Genteki carefully protects the precise methodologies used at this and the following steps in the process. All acknowledge 
that the next few steps involve a carefully selected cocktail of growth accelerators, which can enable a clone to grow from the blastocyst stage to the size of an infant in less than a day. The precise nature of those agents, and the delivery system, remains a trade secret. Even the technicians who work the artificial womb are kept completely unaware of the chemical reagents with which they work. They simply recognize that the maturing clone has reached the next stage when the artificial womb has distended to the size dictated by its growth profile. At that point, the growing clone is transferred from an artificial womb to a juvenile tank, which typically has a 125-liter capacity. Physically, the clone is about the size of a one-year-old. At this point, the growing clone's internal organs become more active. Tubes are attached to allow normal biological processes, such as breathing and elimination, to continue independent of the liquid environment. During this stage, the clone's sensory inputs are overridden by computer-generated sensory data to begin the neural conditioning process. Electrical impulses are applied, stimulating the neurons to align in such a way so as to resemble the connectome in the brain map for the clone line. In well-established models, the clones spend about a week in the juvenile tank. When the size of the juvenile tank begins to restrict the clone's continued growth, it is transferred into a 300-liter adolescent tank. This is its final location until the time of decanting. Continued sensory input provides the clone with additional conditioning and education until the specimen has reached physical maturation. Precise amounts of specific hormones are also applied to enforce or encourage particular physiological traits. At that stage, any necessary surgical modifications are also performed. This can include tissues that are added post-growth, but may also include cybernetic upgrades. Once these surgeries have been performed, additional growth factors are added to reduce healing time. Only after the clone has completed its treatments and healing is it decanted. This typically takes three weeks for a common clone strain, although the surgical modifications and alternative training protocols used in custom clone batches can substantially extend the required time. Under ideal circumstances, stock clones develop from eggs to finished products in just under a month. But lines requiring advanced training programs require more time. After decanting, the clone undergoes a final medical examination to check for any defects. Specimens that pass the tests are moved on to final conditioning and training. Usually by this stage, the clones already have an anticipated owner or licensee, and the ensuing training is customized to the owner's specifications. Neural Conditioning and Beyond when considering the actions of a living organism, it can be challenging to differentiate natural instincts from learned reactions. Because a clone's entire existence is so precisely regulated, 
clones present one of the best opportunities to consider these comparisons. Instincts, whether they are drawn from humans or other species, can be selected when its genome is engineered. Similarly, the neural conditioning and hands-on training that comprise a clone's education are also strictly controlled. A substantial portion of a clone's education takes place prior to decanting. As they are growing and developing, the clone's mind is kept in a semi-conscious state. Under these conditions, sensory input from the body is largely curtailed. Instead, the clone receives mental stimulation similar to what one might experience in a sense drama. At the same time, necessary memories and other knowledge are imprinted from brain tapes into the developing brain. The uploaded input grounds the clone's personality and provides it with background information required to adequately serve its future owner. These recordings are highly standardized for most commercial clones, but large volume orders often include adaptations to the training materials so that the clones are better prepared to serve specific clients. Even after decanting, clones require training and conditioning in the field. This time also serves as an opportunity for the clone to become better acclimated to its body, since even in the most established lines, there remain small variations between specimens at the cellular and tissue level. Consequently, the brain tapes used to instill the clone's physical training only provide a basis for that training. It is necessary to apply those skills and practice to become a fully optimized clone. In some fields, this breaking-in process can require weeks. More commonly, however, a few iterations of repetitive tasks serve as an adequate means to verify each specimen's competencies. Time spent in conditioning provides an opportunity for technicians to make any final cosmetic changes required on the clones before they are released to their new owners. While undergoing AIVM, hair and nail growth is artificially suppressed, largely for reasons of convenience and sanitation. Once decanted, the growth of both is artificially accelerated until they achieve the expected length. Due to the nature of the growth process, there is some variation between specimens, so technicians must tend to each individual upon completion. After the appropriate styling is completed, each clone is tested to verify that it is capable of undertaking all of the self-care rituals required. In most cases, rudimentary correction proves adequate so that the clone does not inflict any injuries upon itself while attempting to perform basic sanitary rituals. In rare cases, some manufacturing or growth defects are uncovered in clones, even at this late stage. Typically, clones consume their first solid meal during their final conditioning to verify that their digestive system works as expected. Basic etiquette is already included in their conditioning, but body control issues often surface at this time. Clones that include unusual body grafts, either biological or cybernetic, undergo initial testing for those systems during their final conditioning. Prototype clones, as well as those with unusual modifications, are subjected to a more thorough screening of these systems at this time. 
In cases where the biological engineering was substandard, or where there was a defect in the cybernetic system, poorly attached components may separate at this stage. This invariably requires recycling the clone, and may require redesign before another model can be made. Some executives argue that the time spent in physical conditioning is not a cost-effective measure. However, medical tests are far more accurately conducted when the clone is in motion. Further, this provides an opportunity for the clone to gain full awareness of its body and recognize any signs of pain that might not be apparent to a medical examiner. If the clone is in an unexpected state of discomfort, surgical procedures may be undertaken as necessary, or the clone could simply be recycled, depending upon the expected cost of any corrective procedures. The final training time also provides one last opportunity for a final medical review of the specimen prior to its delivery to the client. Each clone's performance reflects heavily on the reputation of both Gentechi as well as the company that uses it in production. It is far better to identify any anomalies before the specimen goes into service, where it could do irreparable harm. Consequently, a thorough examination at this stage serves as one last quality checkpoint. Clones that fail this final review are recycled or repurposed for internal use. Anything less than perfection will not live up to the Genteki brand. Maintaining Your Clone Excerpted from the Novice's Guide to Clonership Never forget that your new clone is a living being. Like pets, and even humans, clones have biological necessities that must be addressed. New owners can at times forget, and clones, especially ones placed into new circumstances, are often reluctant to bring them up. In the unfortunate circumstance where a clone is prohibited from using its own discretion, this can lead to unpleasant and even dangerous circumstances. A clone commanded to labor for an extended period without breaks may collapse from exhaustion. Fatigue can also compromise a clone's judgment and reaction time, potentially leading to dangerous circumstances for its owner. Biological necessities, including nourishment, hydration, and elimination, must also be considered. Clones willingly struggle through challenges like a faithful dog, but expecting this performance routinely can lead to performance degradation and may even void the warranty. When you acquired your clone, the included documentation recommended an appropriate diet for the model you purchased, likely along with a prepackaged and easily prepared line of products. Some owners like to vary the diet in order to reward the clone, but this is not encouraged. The prepackaged meals are already optimized for maximum nutritional and caloric value. Too much variety can be unhealthy for your clone and may result in decreased performance or weight gain. Owners should check with the supplier prior to making significant changes in food intake. In the event that the clone exhibits a noticeable change in weight, owners are encouraged to schedule a medical examination. In summary, 
Remember that clones are conditioned to restrict their food intake, but they will, nevertheless, consume the types of food their owner provides.